This episode is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Love trying new fashion trends, but find it all a little intimidating? With Stitch Fix, refreshing your wardrobe has never been easier. They figured out the new 2024 trends, so you don't have to. Just give your stylist your size, style, and budget preferences, and they'll send you five just-for-you pieces, plus outfit recommendations and pro styling advice. Refresh your 2024 wardrobe now and get started today at stitchfix.com. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's been one week since Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith announced the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. Good afternoon. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. That was Smith last Friday. With the indictment, Trump makes history again. The first president to be impeached twice is now the first former president to face federal criminal charges, 37 in all. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. The defendants in this case must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. On Tuesday, Trump pleaded not guilty to all charges in a Miami federal court. The indictment lays out details of Trump's alleged crimes, which highly classified national security documents he possessed, where he stored them at his Mar-a-Lago club, and how he asked his lawyers to lie to federal investigators about the documents. The indictment also alleges that Trump knowingly showed classified military information to a writer and publisher during an interview in 2021. Here's CNN's Paula Reed reading some of the exchanges from that conversation as outlined in the indictment, where Trump refers to General Mark Milley, Trump's chairman of the joint, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He says, quote, well, with Milley, uh, let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't that amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. On the tape, we're told that you can hear him rustling the papers at this point. Look, this was him. They presented me this. Isn't this amazing? This totally wins my case. And I want to note here, he, his case he's referring to here is this dispute with Milley, not the current pending criminal investigation. Except it is like highly confidential, secret. This is secret information. Look, look at this. I will note that secret and confidential are both, of course, levels of classification. And then arguably the most damning quote, he says, he asks if he, someone in the room, if he can declassify it. And then he says, as president, I could have declassified, but now I can't. 
Trump has denied that he ever handled the documents after leaving office. Here he is just last month at a CNN town hall. When it comes to your documents, did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified after. Not not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. I have the right. Again, the federal indictment contains multiple details that contradict Trump's denial. Well, last weekend, former Attorney General Bill Barr summarized the seriousness of the indictment's revelations. He was on Fox News Sunday. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. I mean, it's a it's a pretty it's a very detailed indictment uh, and it's very, very damning. He was totally wrong uh, that he had the right to have those documents. Those documents are among the most sensitive secrets that the country has. He they have to be in the custody of the archivist. He had no right to maintain them and retain them. So. What will be the legal consequences of these charges? How might the trial of Donald Trump play out? And perhaps more importantly, how could Trump's trial change the national political landscape in the longer term? Well, joining us now is Ankush Kadori. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Justice Department. He's also a contributing writer at Politico and a contributing editor at New York Magazine. Ankush, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, and he's with us, as always, from Hanover, New Hampshire. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Hello, Mr. Kadori. So, uh, Ankush, I'd like to start with, you know, just the fact that, yes, it has been a week now since the, the details of this indictment have allowed been allowed to settle a little bit. With the perspective of these past seven days, what's the one thing that, as, as a former federal prosecutor, stands out to you the most? Well, I mean, obviously, we've had a bunch of reactions from Trump and other Republican politicians um, sort of ranging in the strength of their sort of defense of of the former president. I'm sure we get into that or touch on that later. Mm -hmm. But the most significant thing to me is still the indictment itself, quite honestly. (laughs) Um, You know, I followed this investigation as closely as I could through media reports for, for my own work. And, you know, there is still quite a bit that's new in here. Now, these are allegations. It's important to mm-hmm. remember that. Um, these This information uh, would still need to be proved up at a trial. But there's a lot of um, factual claims in here that were new to me, I think to everyone in the media, and really took me aback, I have to say. So give me give me the first one that, that took you aback. Well, first, there are a couple of instances the, the indictment alleges in which, and one of them you just alluded to, um, Trump is alleged to have shown classified documents to people at his Bedminster, Bedminster property in New Jersey. Um, and then second, um, you know, we have this um, trove of communications between Walt Nada and other people on the property that all reflects Trump's involvement in moving the boxes around over the course of the time they were in his possession, including crucially after he... Uh, received a grand jury subpoena as part of an effort to evidently evade um, responding to that subpoena. And then third, um, I would say the information, the the factual allegations tied to material obtained from Trump's own lawyer, Evan mm-hmm. Corcoran. Um, and that is a crucial element of this uh, indictment, the uh, allegations in which the prosecutors claim that Trump 
effectively used his attorney unwittingly to mislead Justice Department uh, investigators. Okay, so let's can we dive into that one um, a little bit more and link it back to um, what you had just mentioned about the conversations that Trump is alleged to have had, or or the moments he's alleged to have shown some of those documents um, to other people? Because I think those two things, at least those two things in combination, again they're allegations, but they they seem to lay out a case in which. Trump was very knowing in his behavior with these documents versus the sort of the the shoulder shrug denial he's been consistently given giving uh, given to the public. I mean, do you do you see that that there's a, a case being laid here for knowledgeable actions allegedly taken by the former president? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, they needed to um, make allegations like that in order to satisfy the elements of the statute that they've charged him under. Right. It, you can't accidentally violate the uh, the, the Espionage Act, which mm. is the statute that they've used to um, prosecute him under the uh, for, for willfully retaining the documents. So you're absolutely right. And of course, there are other allegations here, including you know his involvement moving the boxes around after mm-hmm. the subpoena, all of which goes to his knowledge. And, and the other point I would just say on these two kind of pieces of evidence that you're you're rightly focused on. One of the reasons that they've drawn the attention of myself and other uh, sort of former federal prosecutors, people who handle criminal law, these are forms of evidence that would be very hard for Trump to run away from at a trial, right? His own words, his lawyer's own notes of contemporaneous conversations with him, right? His lawyer was being paid to serve his interests, right? Um, He's his agent. So these are potent forms of evidence that I think jurors are, are likely to latch on to if we see a trial and, and this information is admitted at that, at that trial. If the information is admitted. Okay. So I'm gonna, I want to come back to uh, the, record, the, uh, uh, the transcripts of uh, some of the conversations that Trump is alleged to have had. But um, with the word if, Ankush, you actually opened the door to a really, really important question. And Jack, I want to turn to you on that, because let's just jump forward to for a moment to what uh, the trial, as and when it happens, of the former president might look like, because you've pointed out that uh, they drew a very interesting judge. Eileen Cannon, 42 years old, appointed to the bench three years ago by by Mr. Trump um, with 14 hours of criminal trial experience, no experience in trying national security cases as this one is, and a record of of, uh, at least one decision uh, flagrantly favorable to Mr. Trump uh, for which she was struck down, slapped down by the 11th Circuit Court, um, which unanimously reversed her pro-Trump decision in a doc- the documents case last year. And two of the three judges who on that circuit were Trump appointees. So uh, she and then, you know, when you look at what could she do if she had the mind to continue this, you know, I'm going to be with Trump come what may. Well, one of the things she could do is uh, she could leave out the testimony of that attorney that Mr. Katori just mentioned. It, it, that was ruled allowable by an earlier by another judge uh, that you could pierce the attorney-client uh, protection that usually keeps uh, lawyers' memoranda inviolate. She could. She, she. She's not bound by that, and she could dismiss that. Secondly, she could. As experts say she could entertain the far-fetched. At least some people think charge that there's been prosecutorial misconduct. 
that could lead to delay. And third, and perhaps most crucially, she can decide on potential jurors. Uh, are they, you know, when, when either side says, we don't want that person because they're either pro or tr- tr- anti-Trump, she can overrule them. All of these things are ways in which she can slow down the trial. And in this instance, uh, Nancy Gertner, the former federal judge and a friend of this program, says that this is a situation where speed equals substance, because if Trump can slow things down, it can get he could even perhaps be elected president or another Republican could be elected president. It is in this context, though, somewhat refreshing to report that in a in a in a ruling yesterday, she showed a, a concern with speed. She she had the she told the attorneys they had to by today contact the Justice Department about uh, getting clearance to look at docu- uh, you know security documents, and they haven't of just a few days to uh, confirm that. So that at least is an early sign that maybe she is going to act expeditiously. Okay. Really interesting analysis there, Jack. When we come back from the break, uh, Ankush, I'm going to want to hear from you about um, a judge's role in a case like this. So just hang on for one moment. We're taking a close look at the federal indictment against former President Donald Trump. And we're trying to make sense of what might happen, not just legally, but in the long run to America's political landscape. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're speaking with Ankush Kadori. He's an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the U.S. Justice Department. He's now contributing writer to Politico and a contributing editor at New York Magazine. Jack Beatty is with us. He's On Point's news analyst. So, um, Ankush, pick up where Jack left off and help us sort of make a little sense for those of us who don't know the the, the federal legal system um, as well as you do about how it works, first of all, with with judges being assigned to cases or trials? Like, what's the normal process there? The normal process is that um, the district courts randomly assign 
uh, new cases to the judges that are available. And sort of the, the, the weighting of the judges, like sort of how available are, they are in these randomization uh, um, samples depends on sometimes they're senior, they take on less cases, in some districts they can sort of, when they reach a certain level of seniority, they can kind of pick and choose which types of cases they want to hear. But the bottom line is it is supposed to be random, and it appears to have been random in this instance. Okay, yeah. No, I'm not alleging any wrongdoing. just want to understand yeah. the system mm-hmm. here um, because, of course, the system also includes the fact that no matter who's president, they get to nominate judges to the federal bench, and they go through a process and are either um, uh, installed on the bench or not. And Judge Eileen Cannon was. But, but Jack also points out that she has shown... Um, sort of uh, legal sympathies in in um, cases past towards Donald Trump. So in a, uh, you know, in a typical, well, this is not a typical case, but in a case like this, what is the, what is the role that a judge is supposed to play in terms of um, tr- assuring uh, that a fair trial takes place? Okay, so that's a great question. And I, I would divide this up into three different phases. Uh, the district court judge has a lot of discretion and authority o- over a trial. So there's the pretrial phase, the trial itself, and then the post-trial phase. So in the pretrial phase, as Mr. Beatty noted, there are going to be some opportunities for her to rule on some of, some of those crucial issues. There are going to be motions to dismiss, I would expect, filed by um, Trump's lawyers to dismiss some or all of the counts. That would be up to her to decide in the first instance. There may be discovery disputes. Um, Trump's lawyers may want more information than the government um, is inclined to produce to them in the course of discovery. She would rule on that. She would rule on uh, allegations of misconduct. She could approve uh, interlocutory appeals, which are appeals that uh, are pretrial appeals that are sort of normally disfavored, but she could approve them and, and that would introduce some delay. And of course, she can um, set the trial schedule, right? And, and that's almost entirely within her discretion. Um, and uh, throughout this process, there are going to be rulings on motions to suppress or exclude certain uh, pieces of evidence, including, as you noted, the um, material from Corcoran is likely to be high on that list. Mm. At the trial, right, of course, she's involved in selecting the jurors. She will be ruling on objections that uh, the lawyers make during the course of the trial. There are even, I mean, this is this is sort of a remote possibility, but just to give your listeners uh, the, the sort of full picture, after a jury has been impaneled, but before the jury has reached its verdict, a judge can dismiss a case if he or she concludes that the evidence is insufficient to support a verdict, and that ruling is not appealable. Um, now, that's a very, very rarely used uh, tool by judges. It's obviously somewhat controversial in high-profile cases, but that is an, a, a mechanism that is available to her. But the evidence, uh, but the evidence upon which a ruling like that would be made would depend on what evidence was admitted in all those pretrial motions. Yes, it would, um, but there would be no mechanism to seek any appeal of uh-huh. that decision, even if it seemed to be glaringly improper. Right. I was just I was just pointing that out because, from what you said, it's the same judge that would decide what or has an. Inf- a strong voice in what yes. evidence is admitted. Oh, yes, 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 yes. You're exactly right. So she's, in some sense, shaping the funnel of information that would be even available to her at that point in time in the trial. You're right. You're exactly right. And then post-trial, um, again, there may be a, dis- a motion by Trump's lawyers to set the verdict aside or a motion for a new trial um, because the evidence, they might argue, was insufficient at trial to support the verdict. And that is a motion that would be up to the judge in the first instance. Um, And then, you know, of course, she would set the timeline if there's a conviction for sentencing and and the timeline is going to matter in this case. And that could be months uh, if she so choose for sentencing submissions and the like. And in fact, that wouldn't even be that unusual Mm. months. Mm. Um, And then, of course, 
you know, upon a conviction, kind of the most important thing is she gets to determine the sentence. And though the charges here carry some significant maximum penalties, there are no mandatory minimums on any of the charges um, that have been uh, brought against the former president. So in theory, at least, she has very wide latitude. Now, there are rules and procedures that are supposed to govern how judges um, uh, decide their sentences. It's a somewhat complex area of the law. But the short matter, short, short of it is, for your purposes of your listeners, she has very wide discretion in that, in that setting. Okay. So I want to focus for another quick minute on um, things that might happen pre-trial in that first phase that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Because just to remind folks, the, the indictment alleges, I'm just going to read a bit from it here, that the kinds of documents that were found uh, on Trump's properties included um, – uh, defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, so documents that describe those, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the U.S. and its allies to military attack, and plans for a possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. So that those are the, the types of documents. Um, now, given that, you've pointed out the importance of Trump's lawyers' contemporaneous notes and also um, those those uh, transcripts of uh, conversations that the former president had with the writer and publisher, I should I want to point out that the document says that the transcripts comes from come from recordings that Trump himself approved uh, that those recordings could be made when those conversations happened. So with those two things in mind, in a pretrial motion to not allow that evidence to be submitted to the trial, what argument would Trump's legal team make to justify blocking that evidence? So I think, you know, the, the recording of the meeting at Bedminster, right, the one that Paul, we, we heard Paul read uh, reading earlier in the show, uh, that would be hard because you're, you're right. It's just a recording that he appears to have been consensually involved in. The set of material tied to Corcoran, Right, including Corcoran's notes and, and what appear to have been some voice notes that may, perhaps were transcribed and incorporated into the indictment. You know, the, the argument would be that that material was privileged, mm. um, attorney-client, pursuant to the attorney-client privilege, and that it shouldn't have been handed over to prosecutors. Now, this issue was litigated in D.C., as Mr. Beatty, Mr. Beatty noted, um, and the argument that prosecutors made was that it should be available to the, to, um, the trial team because it uh, the communications were in furtherance of a crime or a fraud. Um, and that is a uh, obscure but significant exception to the attorney-client privilege. So I, I do uh, would expect them to try to relitigate that in front of her um, because it is such a significant body of evidence. I see. Now, Jack, um, you had also pointed out, um, and uh, Ankush Kadori uh, buttressed your thought here about then another factor that uh, Judge Cannon would have um, a great deal of influence on is the the speed of the trial. Right. Uh, and also when it starts, um, you said that perhaps there's a little bit of hope there in terms of um, her most recent comments on um, getting things uh, begun rather quickly. But what's your concern about um, about a trial? Let's say um, in one of Mr. Kadori's writings, he pointed out that uh, federal trials like this could potentially take two to three years normally. If, if that's the timeline, Jack, what's the concern? What's your concern there? Well, uh, from Trump's point of view, uh, it puts everything on the election. If he's elected, he can tell the Justice Department to go away. If he's, you know, or he can or he can deep six the whole thing. Or if uh, another Republican pledged to pardon him is elected, he can be 
he can be uh, he can be pardoned. So I think his calculus is all political all the time and that his legal strategy probably is going to be subordinated to his political imperative to survive, to try to get to the election, to, to hope against hope, perhaps, uh, that he is elected or that a Republican is elected and that all this can go away. Mm. Okay, so Mr. Kaduri, you've also written about this, right? That first of all, um, if Trump does get reelected as president, he could just he could just stop the Justice Department's uh, uh, investigation and representation in in the trial against himself. Yes, he could, and I think Mr. Beatty has sort of sketched out exactly sort of the the the, the odd and unprecedented dynamic. Obviously, everything about this is unprecedented, but the particularly unusual dynamic at play here. Um, He's right about that. Um, he could pardon himself potentially, and that people would be angry and contested. But practically speaking, I think it would be hard for anyone to challenge that. And he could also, yes, as you said, sort of direct the attorney general, including an acting attorney general during the transition before a Senate-approved uh, attorney general comes into place, to uh, dismiss the case and uh, close any open investigations. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because um, if memory serves— Okay, first of all, there's never been a president who stopped in a uh, you know a, uh, mm-hmm. a a trial. That's where whereas he he is the defendant in that trial. So this is an, a unique moment. But in the past, under various administrations, um, justice DOJ's have actually decided to either not uh, defend cases or or drop cases even as they moved to trial. Is that correct? Yes, it's rare. Okay. Um, but recall from the last administration, the Michael Flynn prosecution. Yeah. Right. Which um, he pled guilty to crimes, decided that he wasn't, he didn't, he wanted to withdraw his guilty plea, whatever. But the Justice Department ultimately moved to dismiss that case, and and they were ultimately successful. Um, or they got pretty far along, actually. He got a pardon before the whole thing could, could, as I recall, reach a, a firm resolution. But they did try to do just that. Mm. Okay. So one more question in terms of the mechanics of how these trials work, because Jack, I really appreciated what you pointed out. Right, that that the duration of the trial is important, and then uh, because of the November twenty twenty four elections, that's just a year and a half from now. I mean, Ankush, could you envision any possibility that a trial of this magnitude? Um, is not only begun, but concluded in a year and a half? So it seems unlikely to me, right? I wouldn't assume that that would happen, um, but not impossible, right? And, you know, I think Smith and his prosecutors obviously have said that they want to move it forward. He also noted correctly, and this is this is uh, under the law too, under the relevant statute, that the public also has an interest in a speedy trial in any case, not not just the defendant. And in this instance, I would imagine we're going to start to hear some arguments along the lines of people saying, well, you know, yes, we could push this off past the election, but shouldn't the voters know what the actual evidence in this case is and how a jury renders their verdict before they go to the polls? Um, And so that would be a very tricky um, uh, set of issues for any judge to entertain. And of course, we may have a judge here who's disposed to help uh, the former president. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think it's more likely than not that this case is not resolved, or at least at the trial uh, mm. level by the uh, election. Okay. So what happens inside the courtroom uh, in the trial of Donald Trump must meet strict you know, legal standards, especially as it is a criminal trial. But we have to talk about what's happening outside the courtroom in terms of the, you know, the court of public opinion uh, and the politics that are swirling around uh, the indictment. So let's just listen to how some members of the Republican Party have responded. This is Republican Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina. And on Tuesday, he continued to defend Donald Trump from the indictment. They're persecuting Donald Trump. You don't think he did anything wrong? <laughs> Compared to Joe Biden, this is, no, this is a witch hunt. And let them do it because it's helping them in the polls. It is helping Donald Trump in the polls. And let the American people decide. All right. So that was Republican Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina. And last Friday, on the same day where special counsel Jack Smith made the announcement about the indictment, Carrie Lake, who ran for governor of Arizona in 2022 with Trump's endorsement, spoke at the Georgia GOP convention. We're at war, people. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. The coda there of that's not a threat. But Jack Beatty, um, what do you hear in the language of Lake and others? Well, uh, it's it's an incitement to violence, uh, uh, and it and it um, it's not it's not speaking into a vacuum. According to a study from the University of Chicago, 12 million Americans, four percent of the population, believe violence is necessary to restore Trump to the presidency. Uh, now, does that mean that these these incendiary comments are going to bring you know mobs out in the street, a la a repetition of January 6th? Well, didn't happen in Florida. In fact, one, one wit noticed that uh, at one point there were more feral uh, uh, chickens on the lawn than there were protesters. But the, but the problem is this can always incite the individual berserker, you know, the, the, as it did as the protest and the violent rhetoric over, over uh, the initial Mar-a-Lago search last year, that triggered... A uh, uh, an attack on on the on an FBI office in Cincinnati where a man was killed with a, he had an assault rifle, uh, and something like that could happen again. And in fact, it almost seems like these people are encouraging that in a in a tactic that uh, experts call stochastic terrorism. Essentially, just saying, hey. Uh, uh, you know, um, something terrible might happen. We don't know when, but uh, it could happen. And that that tends to encourage this sort of violence. And, and, and so it's, it's playing with fire. And I wish you could say that it wasn't finding favor with Republican voters. But, you know, we have a Quinnipiac poll this week that shows he's actually gained four points in the week. There are other polls showing he hasn't done so well at all. Uh, and then there were focus groups, you know, Sarah Longwell, our friend of the show, did focus groups. And she found that of 58 people, uh, uh, 26 were more likely to vote for Trump. Only two said they were less likely. So the Trump cult, the hold 
over the minds, over the over the over his voters seems to be strong. What what uh, J.D. Vance <laughs> said in 19, 2016 seems to be true, that Trump is cultural heroin for many mm. of his supporters. Mm. Well, Ankush, I wonder what you think about that, because, you know, I do note that Carrie Lake went um, so far as to point out that she claims that uh, the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump in 2020 are mostly card-carrying members of the NRA. I'm not actually sure that's true, uh, but nevertheless, she, you know, she's bringing guns into her, into her rhetoric there, even though after a long pause, I think she probably thought better of it and insisted that that's not a threat. But what's your reaction to the, this concern about the potential of political violence? I share that concern wholeheartedly for, for the reasons Mr. Beatty outlined. I think the comments from Ms. Lake are shameful. Um, I don't think anyone in public life should be talking like that. Um, and I am worried about it as well. Now, granted, um, this time around, and like in January 6th, the law and federal law enforcement apparatus is not, you know, under Donald Trump's authority. And, you know, I think the, the hearing on Tuesday provided an early nice indicator of some peaceful protests rather than violence. But I share the concerns. Well, you're listening to Ankush Kadori. He's an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the DOJ. He's a contributing writer to Politico now and contributing editor to New York Magazine. Jack Beatty is also with us. He's On Point's news analyst. And we'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Uh, and Ankush and Jack, before we get further into the political ramifications of the case against the federal indictment against Donald Trump, I wanted to just return to one quick question about trial mechanics, uh, Ankush in particular. And that's about jury selection, right? Because I imagine that will take a long time because it's going to be a challenge to find members of the, uh, of the of a jury that have either not at least heard of the indictment definitely have they not heard of Donald Trump and could potentially you know not hold any pre-existing opinions about the case or the defendant i mean it seems next to an impossible situation ankush yeah well if you sort of sketch it out that way i mean you're right and every almost everybody's going to have heard of the it pretty i would assume everybody will have heard about the case um that alone or even if you have some sort of prior opinions about the defendant that alone might not be enough to get you sort of you know removed from a jury panel again a lot of this is up to the judge herself but generally speaking um the sort of key question that a juror gets asked, even when they may have some familiarity with the case, or maybe they even voted for the person, and the, the sort of the way out of getting someone kicked off a jury is the judge asks, okay, despite all that, do you still think you could be a fair and impartial juror who makes their decision based on the evidence that's introduced in this courtroom and pursuant to my instructions, right? Basically, can you set all that aside? And, you know, people can credibly say yes, a judge can say, okay, you can sit on this jury. People can credibly say yes. 
Really? I mean, they can <laughs> they can say yes, but uh, look, in other cases, perhaps so. But this is such a unique moment with such a divisive figure. I mean, would it be credible if someone uh, who, you know, doesn't matter if they voted for Trump or Biden, if they would say, yes, I would put all my political biases aside and will would assess the, the this case based on its merits and the facts presented before me. I mean, is that credible? Look, I share your concern. And I actually, I, I'm a little worried that like, you know, someone could easily, you know, some ardent Trump supporter could simply mislead their way mm. through the voir dire process. Um, it's actually, very, unless they're like so contemporaneous public postings that um, are directly at odds with representations that they've made in court, it's very hard to establish that a juror has actually lied during a voir dire process. Um, but look, um, on the sort of the glass half full view is, um, you know, I have views about um, the current president. I have views about Donald Trump. And I would be able to answer that question totally honestly and say, yeah, I could set all that aside. And I'm sure you know many people could. And there have been politically inflected prosecutions, obviously nothing like this. Um, but, you know, when Paul Manafort was on trial mm. in Virginia mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, there was the similar concerns. Um, all the January and, you know, 6 trials, I'd say. Yeah, those are in D.C., though, which oh, is a heavily okay. Democratic yeah. jurisdiction. Fair um, point. But, but yeah, uh, and, and of course, Florida is much more favorable to Trump in that regard. Statistically, we should assume at least a few Trump voters would be on this jury if that comes to pass. Mm, okay. Well, so getting back to the long-term political ramifications here, we wanted to just take a second to note that uh, while this case is unique in that Donald Trump is the first former president to be uh, uh, indicted under federal charges— He's not the first presidential candidate necessarily to be uh, indicted or uh, charged under the Espionage Act in particular. Um, it turns out uh, that a precedent was set on that matter a hundred years ago by the Socialist Party's w uh, Eugene V. Debs. Eugene Debs has a very interesting backstory. He's a native of Indiana, and he started out as a, in some ways, a fairly conventional trade union leader in the late 19th century, representing railroad workers. And in 1900, he became the leader of the Socialist Party in the sense of its presidential candidate. And for the next 20 years, most of the time, he was the candidate of the Socialist Party for president. That's David Stebbin. He's a professor of history and law at Ohio State University. Now, when the United States entered World War I in 1917, that's when Congress passed the Espionage Act, which prohibited efforts to interfere with the draft, among other things. Debs and the Socialist Party disagreed with the decision to go to war, and in 1918, he went around the country speaking out against the draft, although he had legal advice to speak on the issue indirectly. He would literally tell audiences, sympathetic audiences, you know, now I'm not allowed to speak against the draft, wink, wink, and they would even chuckle. Uh, but I do believe in American freedom and the government not coercing people. And in other words, he was able, to, he felt to get his message across without explicitly attacking the draft law. But in the eyes of the law, Debs's indirect speech was not evasive enough. In a speech in Canton, Ohio, in June of 1918, he was arrested and prosecuted. And the timing of the arrest and prosecution is significant because the fighting for the Americans in Western Europe reached a peak in the summer of 1918. 
And so, and, and the draft law was still working. It was still bringing people into the armed forces. And the feeling was that uh, on the part of the government that <clears throat> nothing could be uh, allowed to interfere with that. And so he was prosecuted and convicted of a violation of the Espionage Act and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Former President Trump currently faces charges under the Espionage Act, although, again, in a very different context. But Professor Stebbin pointed us to another similarity between the two, the reaction of their base. In terms of his core support, I think it made him more of a martyr. In other words, it increased his political appeal to the most anti-war radicals in the country. So that's David Stebbin, professor of history and law at The Ohio State University, talking about uh, 100 years ago and the candidacy of Eugene V. Debs uh, and his charge under the Espionage Act. Now, that last point uh, that Professor Stebbin pointed out about the being charged had made Debs more of a martyr uh, within the eyes of people who supported him in the Socialist Party. There is a direct metaphor between or analogy between that and what's happening right now with Donald Trump. So let's listen to a moment to political strategist Sarah Longwell. She has been doing in-depth focus groups with Trump voters uh, for many, many months now. And on Monday, she told NPR's Morning Edition about how uh, Trump's indictment is affecting his base. There's this phenomenon that happens every time Trump is impeached or indicted, and I call it the rally round Trump effect, mm. where uh, voters express, uh, they sort of share his grievance um, and they view, uh, you know, they use words like uh, weaponized, railroaded, um, two-tier justice system. And it's hard to blame voters for believing this because this is the message they get, not just from Donald Trump, but from a lot of Republican elected officials, from right-wing media, um, even from Trump's 2024 challengers. Mm. And so when the party, you know, everybody kind of rushes to Trump's defense and cries foul, uh, you know, you can't be surprised when that's the message that the voters take in. Here's a specific example. Sarah Longwell, that same political strategist, held a Republican voter discussion in Des Moines, and it appeared on Wednesday uh, on PBS. Uh, and here is what voter Brian Allen said about the impact of Trump's indictment on his vote. I read the indictment, um, and it's plain as day that he broke the law mm -hmm. knowingly. Um, whether the DOJ... Um, came after him, uh, which I, I think is very plausible, and why they're ignoring Hunter Biden's laptop, I think is a separate issue. Um, but it is clear he broke the law, and I think it's time for him to go away. Scorpion. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I appreciated what he did for the country during his four years, um, but I think that he is part of the problem. But when asked if he'd vote for Trump if he were the nominee running against President Biden. Trump's the nominee versus Biden. What will you do? I would vote for him for the third time. You would? I think that uh, it's that significant. So voter Brian Allen there telling uh, Sarah Longwell on PBS that uh, even though he thinks that Trump knowingly broke the law on national security, he'd still vote for him again. Now, Ankush Kadori. 
you've written about um, the, in a sense, the corner that this whole indictment uh, and the coming trial paints Joe Biden in, not legally but politically, um, as the Democratic candidate in 2024. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you know, when Joe Biden came into office, uh, even when he was running, he indicated that he did not want to see his administration prosecute Donald Trump. Now, of course, that was before January 6th. But um, by all outward appearances, he sort of has maintained that sort of disposition, at least early through his term. Merrick Garland, I think, was in that position as well. Um, but, of course, you know, things didn't play out that way. And now there's a, a pending prosecution. And, you know, I think he's hoping that, you know, he can sort of stay quiet. At least that's been the reporting here. But, you know, he is now at the head of uh, the executive branch at a time when his own Justice Department is prosecuting his political rival, um, his leading political rival at the moment. And so I think that, you know, it's going to be tricky for him to try to stay quiet. I know that that appears to be the plan in the short term, but I I fail to see how it will be sustainable, particularly if Trump is the the general election nominee. Yeah, because he'll be asked about it during during the campaign, of course. (sighs) Right. Right, exactly. I mean, it's all well and good when you decide you're not putting out public statements, but eventually he's going to have to answer questions from reporters in some forum. Okay. And Jack, you you know, um, Ankush pointed out something important, that we're we're hearing strong language from the GOP already about, you know, this is how dictators behave, that they they prosecute and jail their political rivals to keep them uh, out of office. Um, I mean, it seems to me that the DOJ has behaved, has, has, uh, uh, done this investigation above board, uh, but nevertheless, that's powerful language that holds sway amongst uh, Trump's base. I mean, what do you hear in that? Oh, it certainly does hold sway, and it fits into the it's rigged argument, and and now it has given license to Trump's, you know, uh, argument. He's saying, "Well, I'm being persecuted." by the Biden Justice Department, if I'm elected, I'm going to persecute them. I'm going to go after Joe Biden. So effectively, Trump is saying, look, the Democrats are doing it now. And if elected, I'm going to do it in spades. And meanwhile, the post-Watergate norm that the Justice Department is somehow separate from the political branch of the executive uh, of the White House, that goes by the board. And in the focus group you mentioned with uh, Sarah Longwell, I was struck by how many people readily thought the Justice Department is just like the president. Uh, you know, he just picks up the phone and says, go get Trump. And they they do it. They had no view of this as an autonomous uh, justice seeking institution. And they completely accepted the Trump line that it's a racket. Mm. You know, um I'm not sure if uh, we can look anywhere else in the world for guidance on how to handle these things, but uh, Ankush Kadori, I am reminded that former national leaders in other countries have been both prosecuted and jailed. I'm thinking it's happened a couple of times in Brazil, for example. In Pakistan, uh, former prime minister there, Imran Khan, is I think still uh, under significant uh, you know, legal jeopardy. Um, Do you see analogies anywhere or is this, uh, given what the United States is, is this a completely unique event? Well, you know, we're a unique country in many respects, but you're right. I mean, this has been done in other countries and and, um, a couple of countries in Europe as well. Um, Sarkozy, Berlusconi, uh, folks, you know, in that in in those countries have been prosecuted by their uh, former, you know, former leaders been prosecuted. Um, And, you know, 
uh, obviously we're very new to this. In some of those countries, the political systems are quite different and the law enforcement apparatus is quite different. So it's hard to draw a one-to-one comparison. And I I make no claims to be an expert in those foreign countries' legal systems. But I do think the the key point here is that uh, a, a fair number of mature democracies have encountered situations like this, have proceeded through them in an orderly way and come out on the other side, um, you know, in a totally orderly fashion, right? And we should hope that we can do the same here. Yeah. And perhaps on that note of hope and belief in the strength of U.S. democracy, I want to just note that um, while Republican support around uh, former President Trump um, has coalesced rather strongly, uh, it's not 100 percent because, for example, Here's former Vice President Mike Pence, and now presidential candidate Mike Pence, on CNBC's Squawk Box on Wednesday, raising his concerns about the indictment against Trump. The very prospect that what is alleged here took place, creating an opportunity where highly sensitive classified material could have fallen into the wrong hands, even inadvertently, that that jeopardizes our national security. It puts at risk the men and women of our armed forces. And on Tuesday, here's what Republican Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska said. I think it's obvious what the president did was wrong. And we just got to be honest. I mean, to have thousands of secrets in your house, showing them to people that were not read in, and then giving back some of it, but saying you gave back all of it and lying about it. I just, there's no way to defend that. And I just think the emperor has no clothes. And if we need to have some Republicans stand up and say that, because come around after the primary, I guarantee you the other party is going to be saying this. Mm-hmm. And I think it will, will cost us the November elections. So in the last minute that we have, Jack, your thoughts on that? Well, of course, Don Bacon uh, is, uh, r- runs from a district that uh, Biden carried mm. in the election. So he's, uh, he's influenced that way. And on the other side, of course, you have the leader of the Republicans in the House, Kevin McCarthy, saying, oh, the bathroom, you know, you can put a lock on the door of a bathroom. Who just laughing the whole thing away. And an analysis in today's times that a quantitative analysis seems to say that the dominant uh, view among House Republicans is uh, we're sticking by him and it's a, you know, it's it's banana republic time and so on. Uh, But it is significant to hear this. And and somebody, uh, Nate Cohn in The Times, conjectures that you see some of this on Fox News, too where they're quoting people who are doubting and people who have credibility or who should have credibility to 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 Trump supporters. We quoted from former Attorney General Barr. Mm. Uh, and if more of that goes on, that could that could chip away at this seeming uh, uh, tight hold Trump still has on his voters. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, it was great to hear from you, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. And Ankush Kadori, attorney and former federal prosecutor at the Justice Department, now a contributing writer at Politico and a contributing editor at New York Magazine. It was great to have you. Thank you for coming on and thank you for your analysis. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Point.